we all know that time is precious, but it's kind of a theoretical thing, right? Until it's not. Until you really are not sure whether you're going to be alive for a month or six months or a year or two years or do you have five years to think about or 10 years to think about. It just totally changes the landscape of what you can plan for, what you can reach for, because a lot of things that are meaningful in our lives require time and effort. It requires sacrifice. It requires moving toward and slowly getting better at. Hey, hey, this is Dr. Kavita Sun. Welcome to the Emotional Mastery Podcast. This podcast is about emotions, psychology, and relationships. Every week, I'll be sharing real-life tools to help you build self-awareness, a better relationship with yourself, and more fulfilling relationships with the people that matter to you. Listen, this is the foundation on which the rest of your life is built. So let's take the time to get it right. I'll see you on the inside. Hello, hello, my friends. Happy Thursday. Welcome to another episode of Emotional Mastery. Ah, Wherever you are in the world listening to this, whatever you're up to, I hope you know that I am thinking about you and I'm with you in this moment. And I'm honored that you tuned in. So today I have a special treat for you. Many of you have written to me to say that you really enjoy it when I share my takeaways and how I've been moved by a particular book or an author, right? Um, as Especially the episode, if you haven't listened to it, I would go check it out. I did an episode um, a few months ago about Viktor Frankl and his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And a lot of, lot of you wrote to say that you were really touched and inspired by that episode. So that inspired me to think about another book that is really, um, in the last few years, I've read it several times. I just recently read it for the third time. And I have to say, I got more out of it this third time than I ever have in the past. And I think that's because of two reasons. One, because I'm older and I've had more experiences, some of them exhilarating and inspiring and some of them sobering. And I have experienced grief more acutely since my father passed away a few years ago um, that I hadn't yet experienced when I last read this book. So in many ways, I think just the depth of experience, life, living that I've done in the last few years has made this book more precious to me. But the second reason is also because I have been reading it out loud. And the prose in this book is so lyrical, it's almost like poetry. And so when I read it out loud, it gave me a much more nuanced understanding and experience really in my body of getting it, of really getting it, you know. So if you do ever pick up this book, I recommend reading out loud at least some of the passages where um, the entire passage is actually one long sentence. And those kind of passages, especially I find reading out loud, it lets you, it's almost like opening a secret door to a deeper level of meaning that you couldn't get by just scanning visually. Anyway, let me get to the book. 
The book is called When Breath Becomes Air, and it's written by Paul Kalanidhi, who has uh, since he wrote the book, he passed away. I think he passed away in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he um, died from severe sort of stage four lung cancer. And he was not a smoker. He was very physically fit. He was himself a neurosurgeon. And so it just is fate, right? That sometimes life deals us all unexpected blows that you know you didn't do anything to deserve, but such is life. And so he wrote this book after he was diagnosed, knowing that he had a much shortened lifespan than he could have ever imagined. He was only 36 when he passed away. And so this book is imbibed or imbued. I don't know what's the right way to say it, but it just is soaked with the wisdom of death looming and time being precious. We all know that time is precious, but it's kind of a theoretical thing, right? Until it's not until you really are not sure whether you're going to be alive for a month or six months or a year or two years or do you have five years to think about or 10 years to think about. It just totally changes the landscape of what you can plan for, what you can reach for, because a lot of things that are meaningful in our lives require time and effort. It requires sacrifice. It requires moving toward and slowly getting better at, right? So what things are worthy of exchanging time for if your time has been shortened to six months or two years, right? It changes the, the question itself. It lends a gravity to the question and um, for sure will change our answers. So Abraham Varghese, who also is a physician who I deeply respect, um, his book Cutting for Stone is just sheer brilliance. And he's recently written another book, um, The Covenant of Water, which I have not read. But he has written a foreword for this um, When Breath Becomes Air. And I would recommend that if you pick up this book, just read the foreword itself. That itself opened up my life in important ways. So the book, how can I describe the book? I would say piercing, life-affirming, even though it deals with and in every page mentions and grapples with disease, sickness, loss, and impending death. It is life-affirming as it talks about the end of it. So if you're listening to this podcast and you've never read the book, let me give you a short summary and then I'll share my four takeaways that I am pondering and trying to apply to my life as a result of Paul's life and what he shared with us. So the book is written by Paul Kalanithi. He was 36 years old when he passed away from lung cancer. He was a neurosurgeon. He was at the very end of his training as a neurosurgeon. And um, he really spent his entire life 
trying to grapple with the biology of the human organism because everything we experience, everything that is meaningful to us is happening in our bodies, right? That's how we experience life itself. Anything we care about, the things we experience and feel that or we're inspired by or the goals we set or, you know, falling in love, the love we feel for our children, everything is encased inside this human body. And so he wanted to really understand and uh, go deep in learning about and treating with reverence this human body in its physical form. And he was also interested to see how that human body interacts with life and with experience and with the intangible things to create the feelings and the experiences that we most cherish and that often we can't quite describe, like falling in love. It is really hard to give a description of it that would be universal, right? The feelings you have as, as a parent or when your baby is born, again, very, very hard to put it into a succinct, um, universally applicable definition. All of these things that are intangible and yet we consider the most precious of life still is happening within this tangible physical body. And he was really interested in the intersection between the two, which itself I found fascinating. What a cool thing to contemplate and try to reconcile, right? I had thought of these things as two separate things, but I'd never tried to grapple with how do we reconcile the two. And that was this man searching. So he spent a lot of his 20s and teens and... Um, up until he was almost 30, he had delved into literature as a way to understand it, a language and the arts as being a doorway to understand the intangible. But then he came to a point where he realized that direct experience was the only way to go deeper, right? Thinking about it, talking about it, writing about it, reading about it could only get him so far. And so he went to med school late in life after having gotten his master's and done, you know, extra fellowships at Cambridge, I think it was, in the UK, and all kinds of very deep delving into literature. Then he turned to and did his pre-med classes, went to medical school, and decided to become a neurosurgeon, finished med school, did residency, did his extra training, and he was, as I said, in his final weeks of training to be a top-notch neurosurgeon at Stanford when his diagnosis was made. So I want to share, so that's a background of this book, right? The context in which Paul's life was embedded and how it came about that he was grappling with these ideas and wrote this book. So I want to share a few things that stood out from the book for me with the hope that it inspires you to go and pick up a copy and check it out or grapple with some of these ideas for your own life as well. Number one, the one of the characters that really has stood out for me in the book, apart from Paul, of course, and his wife, Lucy, is actually his mom, okay? His mom, Paul describes her as being... Um, just determined. She was a determined lady. 
and was committed to providing a first-class education for her three sons. So her context was that she uh, fell in love with and married Paul's dad and both their families, because they come from different um, religious and um, sort of intersectional backgrounds back home in India, their families had been opposed to their marriage. And so they had to really um, cause, it caused a lot of disruption and pain for both families involved. And they weren't in touch with extended family and even their own parents for the first few years because of choosing to get married to each other. So this woman had defied the odds and had committed to things that she didn't know how exactly to reach, but she was determined to reach even very early in her life right? This is, I think she was maybe 19 or so when she met Paul's dad, if I remember right. But very young, where she went through and left everything she had known in order to make this commitment. So that's where her um, sort of life story begins in Paul's book. They then come to the United States. His father is a physician. They are well settled um, I'm trying to remember where, I think in a suburb in Michigan, somewhere maybe near Ann Arbor, somewhere near Michigan, I think, where they were very comfortable. It was a suburb that was, you know, middle class and upper middle class, very good school district, blah, blah, all the, all the things, right, that his mom had wanted for her children. But his father decided to move the entire family <laughs> to a really rural part of Arizona. And I'm not clear, and Paul doesn't really go into what led to that decision for his father. What was he trying to do with his own purpose? And what was the thinking behind that? Not sure. But they moved to really the middle of nowhere in Arizona. And where they end up settling, the school district is really, really strapped for resources. And um, the, the school, high school dropout rate at that time is the highest in the nation, okay? So in this context, this woman, Paul's mom, single-handedly moves heaven and earth to make sure that her three sons get the education they deserve. She um, petitions the school board. She joins the school board. She um, gets from somewhere a college prep reading list and buys all those books, right, which are many very difficult classic literature textbooks that she makes her sons read at a very young age. And they work through the entire college reading list when her sons are in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, okay? She is a go-getter. She is fierce. And Paul describes over time how she actually brings more resources into the entire school district such that the high school dropout rate improves and the percentage of kids entering college and entering good colleges really um, skyrockets during her years that she takes this on as her sort of, the, her battle, right? Her purpose. 
She makes a deep, deep impression and changes the lives of not just her family, but of many, many children in that rural town in Arizona where the same children may not have even known to dream or certainly to access resources that could get them to um, good colleges, um, several of them into Ivy League colleges. So the beginning of the book, that struck me, her character and what she, just living who she was, you know, indelibly imprinted on Paul and his brothers. What a force. The second um, sort of takeaway for me that I've been rolling around in my head, turning around a lot, is Paul's ability to live the question of each phase of his life rather than rush to pat answers. I talked earlier about his lifelong quest to reconcile the unquantifiable thing in human life, like love and connection and meaning and purpose and compassion and forgiveness and all of these things that we put a lot of value in, but it can't be reduced to one definition, right? But all the searching actually happens inside of the human body and his lifelong quest to reconcile the two and to not rush to pad answers. Because many of us have thought about these two things as separate entities. And when you think about reconciling it, it feels like such a huge ordeal and so vague and confusing and sort of hard to pin down that most of us just forget about the question itself because it's uncomfortable to live in that unknown and keep searching for the answer, right? He had an enormous ability to live the questions. And that's something that I'm trying to take away from his life. So my question for the rest of us, me, you, everyone listening here, where do we need in our lives right now to live the questions with curiosity, with courage, with searching, with a beginner's mind and wonder rather than just living our tired, repeated, pat answers? Just think about that. Where are you rushing to answer? Where are you rushing to pretend to know the answer? Or where are you maybe not even giving voice to the question within you? This has been, is, it's opened up a rich um, source of growth for me. And I hope it does for you too. The third thing that I got from this book is the sacredness in finding the work you're meant to do on this earth, right? Think about um, Paul's searching and his um, earnestness and commitment to whatever thing that he's studying at that time, whether it's literature, whether it's the fellowship he's at at Cambridge, whether it's uh, medicine or neurosurgery, he just gives it his all, right? long, long hours, decades, right? Minimal rest. He talks about at one point that for years during his neurosurgery training, he would come home very late at night, right? Midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and he would just collapse on the living room floor because he was so tired that he couldn't even get himself to his bed or change. He would just collapse on the floor and fall asleep 
immediately on the living room floor. And then he'd get up in the morning and freshen up and head out the door at like five in the morning. And despite all of this, his relentless drive to be better, to learn more, to push the limits of what his body and mind can do for the sake of truth and for the sake of the human patient before him. Just being a physician myself, this just gave me chills. This is why we go into medicine. But very few of us, including me, I can't say that I held on to it throughout my training. Paul did, and it really inspired me to think about when you find your calling, it's not often easy, right? It's, you know, we think when we are living our purpose, when we're living our calling, when we're living the life we're meant to live, we will feel just unbridled joy and peace and relaxation and everything will just feel right. But that's not often the case, right? He actually jokes saying that when people ask him, you know, why this looks and sounds so grueling, is this a calling? And he would always answer yes. He says it has to be a calling because otherwise it's just a job. And if it's just a job, it's the crappiest job on the planet. (laughs) He gave and lived more in his short 36 years than many of us do in a long lifetime. So finding your purpose and doing the work you're meant to do might not be glamorous. Okay, you will fail a lot along the way. The only way you can do good work in the world is if you love the walk itself, not just the destination, but the walk itself, the searching itself, the becoming itself. Like a painter who loves her easel and her rituals and the smell of paint and the hours and hours of coaxing her vision on the canvas, sometimes succeeding, sometimes having to tear it all down and start over again. And yet, loving the process, because she doesn't know if Her vision will be applauded or rewarded monetarily by the outside world. It may or may not be, but she loves the process itself. And the process can be grueling, but it's satisfying in its own way. You are pulled towards it like a light to a moth, you know? So if you're in it only for the end result or the money or the validation or the reputation or the 401k or whatever else, it's really hard to do meaningful work and it's really hard to withstand the long, winding, tiring, frustrating road to that kind of greatness. And you may not want that kind of greatness, and that is okay, right? There's no need to justify the things we want and don't want. We simply want them or don't want them. That is justification enough. So if you don't want that kind of um, to do great work in that way, that is okay. But to be aware of that and to drop that, right? But if you do want it, know that you've got to fall in love with the process and the journey itself, no matter where it's leading. Because if you're doing great work, it's often not been done. And so you don't really know exactly where it's heading. Like I said earlier, you've got to be willing to live the question itself and enjoy the sometimes arduous path to get there. And the last thing that I want to share that I've been really pondering as a result of reading this book for the third time is his words to his daughter. Every time I have read those particular words, I've teared up. So those words hit me hard even the first time I read it, but it continued to move me beyond measure when I read it the last time as well. So 
I want to read those words to you. Um, let me see if I can find it because I cannot do justice uh, to those words. If I can find that. He says, when you come to one of the many moments in life, he's saying this to his daughter, right? When you come to one of the many moments in life, when you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world. Do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with a sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied. In this time, right now, that is an enormous thing. These are the last lines in his book. And he died shortly after, and his daughter at that time was eight months old. I, whenever I read these words, I get goosebumps and I tear up. And to me, whenever I get goosebumps or feel moved by something, it's an indication to me that there's something in the message of what I'm receiving that is important for my life, for me to listen and hear and live out. So if that passage really moved you, I would invite you to spend some time with yourself, maybe on a long walk or with your journal, thinking about what was it that is the message that pierced my heart under those words and what is it calling me to live out. So I want to end by saying this book is actually, in my view, a modern version of another sacred ancient text called The Five Remembrances. It's found in the um, Upaga, I want to say it properly, Upagahatana. Am I saying that right? I'm not sure. Listeners, if you know what this text is, and if I'm butchering it, please let me know. I want to pronounce it better. Sutra is the second part of the name of that text and apparently translates as subjects for contemplation. And I just want to say there are five remembrances and I'm just going to just mention those five remembrances and I invite you to think about how Paul sort of grappled with and lived out these remembrances in his book. Number one is I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. Number two, I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. Number three, I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. Number four, all that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. And number five, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. To me, this man's life and his book and his contribution to this world and to the rest of us is an answer to these five remembrances. So with that, I will end this week's um, chat. I hope it bought some, some ways to think and ponder and go deeper in your own life. I would love to hear from you. My phone number is 860-656-8672. That's my personal cell phone number. 
feel free to text me, share with me what moved you, what you'd like to learn or hear more of in the podcast. Give us a review if you have a chance. And I love you. Thank you for spending this time with me and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. If this podcast means something to you, it would mean so much to me if you'd be willing to take 30 seconds to do one or all of these three things. First, can you follow or subscribe to Emotional Mastery? Following the podcast helps you because you'll never miss an episode and it helps us because you'll never miss an episode. So to do this, just go to the Emotional Mastery show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and tap on the plus sign on the top right corner or click on the button that says follow. This is the most important thing for the podcast to reach more people. And while you're there, if you'd be willing to give us a five-star rating and a review and share an episode you love with a friend, I'd be so grateful. We appreciate you very, very much. Thank you.